Okay, very good. Good. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, let me start by saying it's an honor to be up here today. Uh, I'll admit it's slightly terrifying to be given the chance to preach, but I actually kind of prefer it that way. To preach is to deliver a message representative of what God himself intends, at least in part, from the passage we're going to go over this morning. Unpacking God's word and sharing what I believe he's trying to tell us is an awesome and terrifying responsibility. So let me just start with that bit of self-awareness. Uh, to Ron and Bill, thank you for giving me the opportunity, and I, I hope to do it justice. Today, we're going to be going over the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5. So if you're able, please grab that scripture, put it in front of you now. There are a couple of notables I want to call out about this passage as you are turning to it, and then I'll explain why I think these points are important. The first is that this is the first recorded story in Mark where Jesus and his disciples are outside the region of Judea. I'll get into this a little bit more shortly, but suffice it to say, Jesus and his followers are in what they'd perceive to be an alien land. The second oddity is that Jesus and his followers are in this region for a very brief amount of time. It's entirely plausible the entire story we're about to read takes place in a couple of hours, very likely less than a day. The third point is that Jesus performs exactly one miracle, albeit a big one. So we have Jesus and his followers traveling a great distance by boat to arrive in a foreign land to have Jesus perform exactly one miracle and then to turn around shortly thereafter and head back from whence they came. So why do these things matter? Well, they culminate in two major consequences. The first is that this story inaugurates Jesus' ministry to the Gentile world. Up until this point in Mark, Jesus had only ever preached and ministered in Jewish regions and towns. Here, he shifts gears by including the world outside of Israel for the very first time, which, by one way or another, over the next 2,000 years, winds its way up here to us in Pasadena, California. The second and arguably more important consequence of this is that we get a very deep glimpse into the picture of who Jesus is. Oh, I'm sorry, into the spiritual power and nature of Jesus himself. The whole point of the book of Mark is to paint us a picture of who Jesus is. And the story of the Gerasene demoniac uniquely accomplishes this, thus requiring that we account for it when we conclude for ourselves who this Jesus is. So let's get into it then. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran down and fell before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out, into the country, out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to, Je- and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. These are the very words of God, and we honor them, we give them deep reverence, and God, in the unpacking of them this morning, I ask for your mercy, your Holy Spirit, to speak to us, to open our ears, to open our eyes, to hear and to see what you would have for us. Amen. Amen. This morning, the message I have that I believe the word has for us is this. Everyone is a beggar before God. What matters then is what you beg for. Everyone is a beggar before God. What matters then is what you beg for. Points that I'd like to draw from this passage center around the three beggars we just read about. The first one, the demons beg Jesus for temporary mercy. The world begs Jesus to keep his distance. And third, believers beg Jesus to be with him forever. Now the introduction of this passage chronicles Jesus and his disciples sailing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which, depending on where they departed and arrived, was a trip of about two to three miles in length. In the course of their travel, they've moved from west to east, from the region of Capernaum into another region known as the Decapolis. Now, if you've ever been to Lake Tahoe in Northern California, it's like leaving the shoreline on the state of California and arriving on the other side in the state of Nevada. The difference here, though, is that these two regions of Judea, even though they are geographically close together, could not have been more culturally opposed. In contrast to the region where they had just come from, the population of the Decapolis was primarily made of Gentiles. The group, of the, people, the group of people there did not believe the same thing that the Jews believed. They did not practice the same religion that the Jews practiced. They did not conduct their lives the same way the Jews did. The differences were so stark that the Bible records multiple accounts of great divisions between these two people groups. On one hand, you had the Jews who saw themselves as the closest to God of any other nation in the world, And then on the other hand, you have the Gentiles who were perceived as living completely opposite to the ways God was calling people to live. So as soon as a Jewish reader here hears this phrase, the country of Gerasenes, it signals to them a lost land full of lost people that is best to be avoided. Now that Jesus and his followers had made landfall, they'd better be prepared for anything that would come upon them. Mark, of course, 
waste no time detailing exactly that. So the first beggar that we meet in this story is Legion. As we will see, this fierce spiritual opponent of the Lord will find himself at wit's end, left begging for short-term mercy. The imagery given to us in verse 2 is one where the boat Jesus and his disciples are in has just come ashore. The territory into which they have landed has been claimed previously by evil influences. And now that Jesus has arrived, that evil wastes no time in starting a confrontation. Leading up to the confrontation, Mark describes for us the power of this demonic possession that he has come to face. What we read about in verses 3 through 5 is a man whose life is defined by torment. Living among the tombs describes his social situation. The people of the region in which he was in tried their best to alleviate the man's suffering, but came up short at, at every attempt. When their powers came up empty, ostracism was the only recourse, and the man was driven as far from society as possible. Imagine what it would take for someone to be such a social outcast that the only place where they could live was among the dead. The passage also speaks to his inner turmoil. The Bible clearly states that the people tried to bind the man up in chains, but he was able to wrench himself out of them. Now, this is an example of what we might call today hysterical strength. Despite the somewhat silly name, there are anecdotal stories that we hear about where, for example, a mother can lift a car off of her child in an emergency. Accounts of hysterical strength exist, causing the individual to perform a physical feat that otherwise would have been impossible for them to pull off. And here, we read of a similar situation of a man so tortured by the demons within him that he's able to free himself from severe physical bondage. His only remedy, the Bible tells us, is to cry out into a world that wants nothing to do with him. Furthermore, his only weapon of combat, his furthermore, the only weapons to combat his possession come from whatever he could grab, the stones lying about, which he would use to inflict pain upon himself. This demonic possession reiterates a biblical truth. Spiritual enemies exist and are incredibly powerful. Peter writes in his first epistle, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8. Evil intends to destroy that which is good. This plays out in God's creation, and the devil and his cohort do everything they can to, to disrupt God and to mar his creation. In Genesis, we read that mankind is unique in all of creation as the image bearers of God. And so we are a particular target for demonic forces to make our lives as miserable as possible. By doing as much harm as possible to us and the rest of God's creation, the devil pursues his primary goal of doing as much harm as possible to God's character. It should come as no surprise then that the moment Jesus steps off the boat, he's confronted by this evil that seeks to continue its successful campaign in the region. Now what plays out over the next several verses is nothing short of spiritual warfare, as Legion and Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe over the life and the well-being of this possessed man. Now as we get into it, note here in verse 6 that the man runs up to Jesus and falls at his feet. In other translations of the Bible, this word is actually translated worship. Now, regardless of the details, it's clear that there is already a hierarchy of power that's been established here between Jesus and Legion. This does not stop Legion, however, from trying to control Jesus in this encounter. In verse 7, we read, Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, what Legion is trying to do here is best explained with an illustration. When I was in junior high school, 
my brother and I were roughhousing with some couch cushions in our living room. The game was simple. Each person takes a cushion, they hold it chest high, and then you would run at each other full speed, colliding as hard as we could, crashing into the ground unscathed. The game was foolproof, as clearly we had considered every safety precaution, and everyone was having a good time, so what could go wrong? Well, after the umpteenth collision, I found myself uh, with this game, things getting a little dry. So I decided the next time we would clash, I'd give the cushion I was holding just the littlest shove to see what might happen. Just to put a little bit of extra energy into the collision in my favor. Now the running up in the collision went off without a hitch, but when that extra push came, well, it wasn't something that my brother was expecting. Consequently, he lost his balance and found himself very slowly backpedaling to the end of the living room, right into the sliding glass door leading out into our backyard. Now, although the sliding glass pane had started to break, miraculously, it resisted him enough to stop him and he sustained no injuries. However, about two feet off the ground, we had managed to punch a nice rump-shaped hole through the sliding glass door. You can imagine when my parents first arrived upon the scene. They saw the cushions, they saw the wide-eyed children, they see the hole in the giant sliding glass door, and the words out of their mouth were probably something like, Foster Thomas Brereton, what in the world is going on here? It was the dreaded, fully qualified, first, middle, last naming address. Now, any parent in the universe knows that by invoking the first, middle, last name, they were calling down the severity of the situation, the gravity of their presence in it, and the control they were looking to exert over it. Sanity had to be restored. It was their job to restore it, and that's what they were here to do. Now, coming back to our story, that's exactly what Legion is trying to do here. The difference, though, is that he is in no position to exert any kind of power over Jesus. It would be as if in my situation, I locked eyes with my mom and immediately shot back, Barbara Elaine Brereton, what does this situation have to do with you? Now, I'm 42, and even saying it right now makes me nervous. My parents are kind, loving, wonderful people, and my family relationship was and continues to be amazing. Nevertheless, had I tried to pull something like that back in junior high school, I'm pretty sure I would not be here today to tell you about it. So it's laughable to think that I would have had any success with such a tactic. Equally so, it's laughable that Legion thinks they're going to control this encounter with Jesus or exert any control over him. There is, however, one thing that the demon gets right in his first volley in this spiritual battle. It's something that nobody else present, not the possessed man, not the herdsmen, not even the disciples, seem to understand deeply, if at all. It is who Jesus is. Legion ascribes to him the title, Son of the Most High God. Now, when this title is given to Jesus, it's a direct reference to his role as God's appointed Messiah and King. In Luke chapter 1, we're told by the angel Gabriel what this name actually implies. The angel says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. There's that title. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here, in the very onset of this encounter, we catch a glimpse of the awesome person, power, and purpose of Jesus Christ. And this glimpse is provided to us by none other than the demons themselves. 
So despite what they've got right, the demons poorly attempt to exert power and influence over Jesus and quickly try to save themselves. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Mark 5, verse 7. You can almost envision Legion pointing the demon-possessed man's finger in Jesus' face, trying with all of his might to convince Jesus to leave them alone. Here he demands, with the character of God himself as collateral, make an oath to me that you will cause me no harm. Cause me no harm. Can you feel the irony here? This demonic force whose terrible possession of a man has driven him to exile in a cemetery is here asking to be left unharmed. This lieutenant of the devil himself, who is so dedicated to torturing a man to the point of self-mutilation and incessant wailing, is here asking for clemency for his crimes. It is at this point where the tone in the conversation shifts, and intolerable cruelty starts to undo itself, and Jesus' power gets put on full display. In verse 9, he quickly turns the table on his enemy. He asks them a simple, pointed question. What is your name? In so doing, he demonstrates two things. The ineffectiveness of the demon's attempt to control him and Jesus' ability to gain control over the demon by requesting his name from them. As we saw earlier in the confrontation, the use of a name was an attempt to seize power. Here, by pulling his name out of his assailant, Jesus shows everyone who's watching who is really in control. My name is Legion, they respond in verse 9, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion was well known to everyone across both Judea and the Decapolis. At the time, it was the largest military unit in the Roman imperial army and was comprised of approximately 5,300 of them on horseback. They were the elite heavy infantry that the Romans used so effectively to conquer the region we are now in. The demons used this term as their name was an attempt to convey, again, their power and desire to control the situation. Now, it's important here to recognize that, both this pow- that this power is both legitimate and overwhelming for any mere individual. The demon-possessed man is the primary evidence that we have of this fact. We have no reason to believe that from a spiritual perspective, the demons possessing this man were of the quantity... We have no reason not to believe that from a spiritual perspective, the demons possessing this man were of the quantity and might of a legion of soldiers. Despite Legion's attempt here to somehow intimidate or scare off Jesus, in reality, this declaration is a last gasp attempt to reclaim any scrap of control over their fate. As they fire their final volley into the spiritual battle, they soon realize they have been completely stripped of all their power before Jesus. Nothing they have attempted to do has affected one whit of change in their favor. Legion, who for so long had bound up this man and tortured him to the point where death was more favorable to life, who had carved out a place for themselves outside the city and had had run the place, are now reduced to begging for their lives. In verses 10 through 12, we see a truly powerful demonic force turned disheveled and powerless and looking for some kind of temporary respite. Luke, in his parallel account of this same confrontation in chapter 8, adds a few more details to Legion's plea. And Legion begging him, and Legion begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Luke chapter 8, verse 31. Brothers and sisters, we cannot fathom the depth of hatred that God has for this kind of evil. 
There is no category into which we can place the wrath that God has stored up for powers that actively oppose him. God Almighty is a holy and righteous God and will by no means leave injustice unpunished. God may indeed delay repayment for a season, and it is true that in human scales those seasons can seem to be much longer than we think they need to be. But it is vital to our spiritual lives that even when God delays his justice, that he will bring it about in his good timing, and in such a way that we too will eventually confess his wisdom in the bringing of it. For the demon-possessed man, we cannot imagine the seeming eternity of pain he suffered at the hands of Legion. But God knew, and he had a purpose for it, and that was to demonstrate the overwhelming majesty and power of Jesus Christ, the one whom God has appointed to take away not just this man's pain, but all of our pain. And now for these demons, their time had come. In Jesus' exorcism of Legion, it's interesting to note that they were begging for permission to leave. The situation had grown so dim for them that the reality and the reality that they faced in being up against the wrath of their creator, that they wanted nothing more than to be away from the situation. Now, there are a couple points I want to make about this herd of swine. One is that it showed everyone present the effectiveness of this exorcism. With Legion moving into, moving into the herd, the implication is that they had completely left the man. With such a miraculous exorcism as such as this one, it is no surprise that it was confronted by such a dramatic physical manifestation. The second point is that the size of the herd, about 2,000 pigs, are to show once again the level of the power that Legion did possess. The affliction the demons had over the man had now been transferred to thousands of animals, and it drove these pigs, who normally do not have an er a herd instinct, into the sea where they were drowned. Despite their pleas for mercy, the permission Jesus granted to Legion lasted only long enough to send them into the abyss where they no longer harm God's creation. So that was our first beggar. Evil begged Jesus for respite and received judgment instead. Let us move on now to the second of our beggars, as there are several lessons that we can draw from them as well. The herdsmen and the town folk are next on our list. Now, we know from verse 17 that they begged Jesus to leave the region. I want to look into the heart behind why they were begging for what they did and what we should be drawing from it. The two main aspects I want to cover are fear and complacency. So let's look to the first issue, that of fear. We read in verses 14 through 15 that the herdsmen leave to fetch the local town folk who come and assess for themselves the situation. They see Jesus they see the demon-possessed man who was now sitting there clothed and in his right mind. What was their immediate reaction? Well, it says they were afraid. At first blush, it seems strange that their response to what they, were first, what they were seeing was fear. Why might that be? Well, we can't really say for sure, but it's reasonable to surmise that it came from their established relationship with the demon-possessed man. They well knew the agony and the torture that he endured at the hands of Legion. They witnessed firsthand his crying out day and night. They tried and failed to contain him with chains and other strong bonds, only to watch him break free of them. And over the weeks and months and years, they were reminded over and over again the tragedy of this man's plight and their helplessness to do anything about it. And now here they stood, finding him completely cured of everything that they had fought against and lost to for so long. So they well knew the raw power that Legion had over this man. And here stands Jesus, 
the only one who had the authority and the ability to subdue the demons and set a man in his right mind. And that terrified them. So that was fear. Now let's look at complacency. The complacent soul is one that is self-satisfied in their current situation, despite being unaware or uninformed of the actual danger they might be in. Now, as far as the town goes, there's a very practical matter in the herd of pigs that were lost in the sea. This loss would have no doubt been a significant economic impact to the town, as well as a great personal impact to the shepherds and the families charged with watching over them. So in one regard, they're acutely aware of this great thing that's happened to the demoniac. But they're perhaps more aware of the economic impact that this event has had upon their community. And the city took the pieces of evidence that it had before them. It took the demon-possessed man who had been cured. It took the herd of pigs that had been cast into the sea. And the conclusion that they drew was that Jesus was more of a liability than an asset. Despite all the good things that Jesus had done for this man, despite all the good that had come from this one scenario, they were more aware of what it was going to cost them on an individual level, on a corporate level, and they were not willing to pay that price. And this response was, and this response that we see from the city is indicative of the response that the world gives to Jesus. They hear the good news, they see all the good that it has to offer, but they are more aware of what it is going to cost them. And in the end, their hearts cannot pay the price. David Garland, in his commentary on Mark, said it better than I can. He said, the demons had begged Jesus to let them stay in the region. The townspeople were now begging Jesus to leave the region. They're more comfortable with the malevolent forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they are with the one who can expel them. They can cope with the odd demon-possessed wild man who terrorizes the neighborhood with random acts of violence, but they want to keep someone with Jesus' power at lake length on the other side of the sea. They must consider Jesus more dangerous and worrisome than the demons. That is a sobering conclusion to arrive at and a warning that all of us should pay attention to. The main lesson for us to draw from the townsfolk is to be diligent from hardening our hearts to God and the work that he may be trying to do around us. In John chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, he writes it like this. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus, in the chapter before the one we're reading today, explained to the disciples the intent of the parables that he was teaching about during his ministry. He says, for those outside, everything is written in parables so that they may see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they turn and be forgiven. Now, when you read passages in the Bible that talk about men and women with eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear and you wonder what could it mean, well, the reaction of the town is an example of what that looks like. These are the kinds of people that scripture is speaking about. Psalm 135 adds a little more clarity when it details them as such. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, 
so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The herdsmen and the town folk are proving out these words. The Bible makes it very clear that every soul worships something. There is something that is core to the heart of every person that they are betting their lives on. If that is not God himself, it's an idol. Now, where worshiping God will make you more into the person you are meant to be, idolatry will take you further and further away from it. The ever-quotable Charles Spurgeon summarized it this way, The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some people to repentance hardens others in their sins. Spurgeon said that in a sermon he delivered in 1881. The same gospel which melts some people's hearts to repentance hardens others in their sins. It was true for these town folk 2,000 years ago. It was true in 1881, and it's true today. The response that we see from the city here is indicative of the response that the world at large gives to Jesus, namely, that they will do everything in their power to keep him at a distance. Brothers and sisters, sometimes there's a cost that God asks us to pay so that we can receive what is truly good. We have all found ourselves in the same situation the city was in, probably more often than we care to realize. Sometimes God kills off our proverbial herd of pigs, something that we may genuinely value and judge a good provision to liberate us for some, from something holding us back or to give us something greater. It is, not, is it not too tempting when faced with a choice between a good that we want and what we believe God is calling us to do to choose the wrong path? May God keep our eyes and ears open, ready to see and hear afresh the wondrous calling he has for each of us. Now the end of verse 17 concludes the second beggar's story. We move on now to the final beggar, another one the Bible challenges us to see ourselves in and draw from him what lessons we can. Now in verse 18, no sooner does Jesus honor the townsfolk request, he starts to get back into the boat, but the man healed from demonic possession runs up to Jesus and begs him to follow him. Now I do not want to minimize the miracle that we've just read about, the exorcism of a legion of demons from a man who had been tortured for years on end. But I also don't want us to miss a link that exists between this man's story and ours. You don't have to be possessed by an army of demons to require rescuing by Jesus. Oftentimes, the kinds of things we struggle with aren't the supernatural, the unexplained, or the mysterious. To find yourself wrestling with what commenter David Carlin calls mundane spiritual warfare is truthfully more the exception than the rule. Chronicles of Narnia author C.S. Lewis made the same connection in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Telling of his life as an atheist, wrestling with spiritual realities he was being exposed to, he said this, For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. My name was Legion. If you are a believer today, I trust you can say the same thing about your past self. For Jesus is a savior who rescues us from broken relationships, crippling anxiety or depression, 
from uncontrollable addictions, from lustful, wandering eyes, from hearts filled with anger, or from any other number of sins too plenty to mention. This biblical Jesus changes our lives for the better. He takes broken people and adopts them into his own, and he heals them. Even so, while temporal healing is genuinely well and good and something we should ask for and seek from the Lord, what matters far, far more is the eternal condition of this same soul. This formerly demon-possessed man, a generation or so later, he died. And what would be the true value of a life saved for a handful of decades, only to be lost again to death? Jesus rescued this man, not just from a temporal malady, but from an eternal condition that had him separated from God himself. Now remember earlier on in the story when we were talking about Jesus' power, of his unconditional authority, of the confrontation, in the confrontation as it unfolded against Legion. Jesus himself tells us that that authority was put to use for a greater purpose than mere signs and miracles. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus declares this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it back up again. Verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the charge that I received from my Father. He laid down his life of his own accord. What he's talking about here is the cross. His authority was spent subjecting himself to the wrath of the Father, to die a sinner's death on our behalf. And then that same authority was used with equal power to be resurrected again, to confirm the ultimate mission that Jesus, Jesus came here to do. This is the true power of the gospel. Not that a man was healed from 5,000 demons for one lifetime, but that a lifetime of sins has been forgiven for all of eternity. Now, one final point I want to make of the demoniac. Of the three beggars in this story, this is the first request that Jesus does not honor. At first blush, this seems quite unusual. Surely the man is a lifelong convert, all too aware of the past from which he's been freshly released. Nobody could debate the man, the man's ensuing devotion to his Savior. But rather than only denying the man from joining him, Jesus redirects him and instills in him a mission. Verse 19, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus commands him to return to the community to which he belongs. The Greek phrase in this passage literally means go to the home of your own, which conveys an intimate and familial connection this man had with someone else in that region. Somewhere out there was a group of people who had a genuine heart for the well-being of this man. Try as they might, they were unsuccessful in alleviating his condition, but that did not diminish their love for him or their desire to see him rescued. It would be hard to overstate what the reunion this man is about to have with them. A knock on the door, and his own people have an unexpected visitor. Then there he is, before them, in his right mind, with his face beaming with hope and joy. Once the astonishment wears off, and the hugs have been given, and the tears of celebration wiped away, the first thing out of their mouths have to have been, what happened? And you can imagine how effortless it must have been for this man to say, I met a man named Jesus. 
a Hebrew from the other side of the sea, who pulled me out of the pit I was in, and he made me whole again. The testimony of a changed life is never more powerful than with the people who know you. For this man's people, there is no counter-argument to having once known him as a tortured, uncontrollable wretch, only now to see him saved of this great curse. Jesus is most glorified when out of this man's mouth, his name is proclaimed. The man begged to be with Jesus, to follow him and be with him forever. And even though he was sent away, he obtained his heart's desire. So too will every heart that makes this same plea. If I could have the worship team, please come join me up front. I'd like to wrap up with a couple points of application and a quick summary. Realizing we are beggars before God shows us something about who God is. When each one of the beggars in Mark 5 come to this realization, it showed Jesus' authority, his power, and his irresistible grace. And also, what they ended up begging for reveals something about who they are. To ask for mercy as his enemy, or distance as his creation, or closeness as those who belong to him, say a great deal about the heart of the one who is doing the asking. Now as to application, I have three that I would like to draw from each of the same beggars that we've been taking a bit of this story from and apply it to our lives in practical ways. As we look to the first beggar, let us beg God for a spirit that resists evil. Remember the quote I I mentioned from C.S. Lewis where he took a look at his life and he concluded, I am legion. Now if we're honest with ourselves, we are all still fighting battles in our hearts against enemies that seem to be custom-tailored to our own specific circumstances. Are you feeling isolated? Easily prone to depression or self-harm or harboring a sin that you believe to be harmless? Let us turn to God with all of these conditions and beg him for his Holy Spirit to keep resisting, to keep fighting. The one thing we know is the best cure-all for these kinds of burdens that we all carried with us into these doors this morning is the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. As we look to the second beggar, let us beg, let us beg God to be vigilant against fear and complacency. Has something changed so dramatically for you recently that you fear God might not be seeing you in your current situation? Perhaps you feel forgotten or wondering where his help might come from or Are you more interested in God not changing anything at all? In keeping things status quo? Because you like it just the way that it is. In all of these perspectives, we are tempted to succumb to self-preservation. Brothers and sisters, God will persevere us. The herdsmen and the townsfolk in this story drove their savior of the world away from them. We must be spiritually vigilant to avoid repeating their same mistakes. Therefore, we must keep ourselves before God constantly asking him to keep our eyes seeing what he is doing and our ears hearing his voice. As we look to the final beggar, let us beg God to follow him and to trust him as we do. When Jesus saved the demon-possessed man, he did not grant his immediate request. Jesus didn't want the man to return to him to the other side of the lake because the plans that he had for him on this side were more important. We must recognize that as this man went out into the Decapolis, obeying all that God 
obeying the call that God had on his life, that God was with him. Jesus may not have been physically present with him on his mission, but we know that by obeying God and doing what he was asked to do, he was doing it all in the presence of the Lord. For the formerly demon-possessed man, following God, looked very much like it looks for us today, seeking out God's will, obeying, and continuing to walk by faith, not by sight. And in so doing, we can believe Jesus' promise at the end of Matthew, Behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father God, an amazing story has unfolded before us this morning. One of your power, your authority, your love for your creation, your love for us, the call that you put on each one of our lives. God, and we find ourselves at awe. We find ourselves begging you to follow you wherever you would have us go. Thank you for the privilege and the honor that we have to be called your sons and daughters, your children. Thank you for the Savior of the world who made it all possible that we could be forgiven and stand before you righteous and clothed not because of our own power, not because we are great, but because you are great. Thank you, Lord, for all of this that comes to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.